Today we're going to be, uh, begin looking at the Apostles' Creed. If you're visiting with us today, uh, we're doing a summer series on the ancient creeds. We spent the last several weeks looking at the Nicene Creed. That creed is one that gives us a, a full picture of what orthodoxy is, of what right belief is. And now we're going to find in the Apostles' Creed that there's significant overlap between the two. Also, much of the history that we needed to cover in the weeks uh, looking at the Nicene Creed won't need to be repeated, and so uh, we're going to spend just a few weeks each on the Apostles' Creed and on the Athanasian Creed. Our text we're looking at today is Acts 2, so go ahead and turn there, verses 22 through 41. As you get there, if you're able to stand, go ahead and stand and follow along as I read. Acts 2, beginning with verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption." You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. With many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace to us grace that you've lavished upon us. Thank you for Jesus. 
Thank you for the blessing that we can go through these creeds and dwell on who you are, who you've made us to be. We think about your goodness and your power and kindness to us, Lord. Help us. Help us to believe. Help us to embrace the truth of who you are. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. As we begin looking at the Apostles' Creed, I want to give you a, a little bit of review in history, how we have the Apostles' Creed. Apostles' Creed is the oldest of the creeds, and its influence can be seen in many of the um, subsequent creeds throughout history. We looked at the Nicene Creed, and now we're looking at the Apostles' Creed, which came before it and certainly influenced what we have in the Nicene Creed. Remember, the, the Nicene Creed purposed to bolster the doctrine of the Son, but otherwise it's very similar to what we're going to see in the Apostles' Creed here. The Apostles' Creed is not a direct production of the Apostles themselves. However, it is called the Apostles' Creed because it preserves the rule of faith which was passed down from the Apostles. The official Apostles' Creed dates from before A.D. 250. You recall that the creeds were often composed as a response to wrong teaching an affirmation of right belief being challenged by heresy. Ignatius of Antioch, an early church father, wrote against the heresy of Gnosticism. Ignatius, to give you a picture here, died sometime in the early 2nd century, around 108 to 110 AD. Jesus died 70 to 80 years before Ignatius died. And the Apostle John, who wrote the Gospel of John, as well as the three letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John in Revelation, died around the same time as Ignatius. And tradition tells us that John was the one who discipled Ignatius. Ignatius, in writing against the heretical docetic Gnosticism, cited a creed that is similar to the Apostles' Creed. Irenaeus, who lived after Ignatius, wrote a creed around the middle of the second century, which bears a close resemblance with what we know as the Apostles' Creed today. Knowing nothing else about Christianity, you could find out who God is, the story of what happened to Jesus of Nazareth, and what will happen next in this short creed. The Apostles' Creed says this, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Today, we're going to cover the sections on the Father and the Son. Before we get to that and our text, I want to remind us of something, of how important these creeds were. 
You remember in 1 Timothy 3.16, it says this, Great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This was likely a confession or creed of the church. We today see the creeds in written form. Maybe you grabbed one on the way in. You have it written in front of you. That's how you know the Apostles' Creed if you are familiar with it, most likely. We see them in written form, and that's a blessing for sure. But the followers of Jesus, the disciples of the Apostles, and many, many others for centuries to follow, they heard and memorized and recited. That's how they knew them. Remember, generous estimates say that about 10% of the population could read, and they didn't have access to written scriptures. So likely the creeds kept their faith in the midst of persecution. I think they can be that for us as well. We rely less on hearing and memorization than they did, but that can be a weakness for us. So let's look at the content of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Now, a lot of this section and the next will be review. We just covered these doctrines in the last weeks. If you are If you're new to Cornerstone, you may not know that all of our sermons are available both on our website and our Facebook page. But in the sermon on June 5th, we looked at how worthy God the Father is, worthy of our worship, worthy of our praise, worthy of our affections, worthy of our lives. We looked at His immutability, how He cannot and never will change. We saw that God is eternal. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's omnipotent, meaning that God is all-powerful. He truly is, as the creed says, the Father Almighty. The last attribute we looked at that morning was the Father's omnibenevolence. God is good. God's goodness is that quality of God that lacks any kind of malice and promotes the well-being of others with whom God enters into a covenant relationship. So how our almighty, all-powerful God executes justice for the oppressed, gives food to the hungry, sets the prisoners free, opens the eyes of the blind, lifts up those who are bowed down, loves the righteous, watches over the sojourners, upholds the widow and the fatherless. And these are wonderful truths that remind us of how worthy the Father is of our worship. That we don't just come and sing. We come to worship. We come to lift our hearts, our affections, our lives to him. 
I want to highlight two other things briefly this morning as we consider God the Father. First, that He is Father. That's what we see in the creed highlighted. I believe in God the Father Almighty. I just want us to consider this. Whatever a father is supposed to be, no matter what your experience was with a father, whatever a father is supposed to be, God the Father is exactly that for you. 2 Corinthians 6.18 says this, And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Psalm 103, verses 13 and 14, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. I believe in God the Father Almighty. Secondly, God the Father Almighty is the maker of heaven and earth. Now, I'm not going to say much here, but would rather let him speak for himself. Maybe you have seen already, probably most of you have seen the pictures that have come from the Webb telescope. You guys know what that is? The new telescope? It's a hundred times more powerful than the Hubble telescope, and the pictures are amazing. I have one that I want us to look at this morning, so go ahead and put it up there. Thanks, Harley. Okay, so this, this picture here, um, just to give you an idea is, is if you were looking up at the sky, it's really just a small piece of the sky. So if you were to take your hand away from your body and stick your thumb up, go ahead and do it. Okay, we're going to do it. And you're going to look at the ceiling, okay? Just look at your thumb at the ceiling, okay? The area that your fingernail is on your thumb, that's the amount of space as you're looking at the sky that this picture takes, Okay? And everything that you see in that picture that doesn't have the strands of light that come off of it, there are a few things that you see, the, the, the star-like things that are star-like, star um, that have the strands of light that come off. Everything that is not that is a galaxy. Is a different galaxy. That is mind-blowing. That is insane to consider creation. What does the psalmist say? The heavens declare the glory of God. Take that in for a moment. God, the maker of that. He is the father to you. Is benevolent to you. Creed continues, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. Now again, to review some. Jesus is the Son of God. You may notice that the only references to the deity of Christ in the Apostles' Creed is that 
he's seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty and that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. You may ask why the creed doesn't speak more to his deity the way that the Nicene Creed does. It's because the heresy it was combating was Gnosticism, which questions the authenticity of the physical, not the spiritual. Gnosticism would have more uh, difficulty believing in a God who became man. They believed that Jesus only seemed to have a physical body. Again, the creed here refers to his virgin birth, which is a blatant statement that Jesus had a physical body being born from literal woman. In the sermon on June 19th, we looked at the virgin birth. The Son of God comes miraculously to this earth through the womb of fallen humanity. The Son, who had always been with the Father, puts on flesh for us, conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Look at our text today, verses 22 and 23. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, was buried. I love it here in Acts 2 as well as in Acts 4 how clearly it's explained. Yes, Jesus was crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. It says that. But it was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This is incredibly important. It wasn't a random act of violence. It was violent. But it was purposeful. It was the reason that the Son put on flesh. God foreordained the death of Christ to bring life to His creation. To bring life to lawless men. And the definite plan of God did not end in death. Verse 24, God raised him, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. Beautiful, wonderful picture of God's grace. I've said this many times here. I've quoted this many times, but it's something we all need to remember. Tim Keller said it so well. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is both proof and promise. It's proof that God accepted the sacrifice of Jesus for our sins. And it is a promise that we too will be raised with Him to live forevermore. Verses 25 through 28 are from Psalm 16, 8 through 11, which we read together earlier. Peter is explaining this wasn't about David. It was about Christ. When David wrote the psalm, it was foretelling what would take place in the Messiah, the Christ, the Son. Consider something here for a minute. 
Peter is preaching to Jews of a multitude of nations. That's what's happening here in Acts 2. How did they understand Psalm 16? As they heard it, recited it. How are they hearing this from Peter? What is Peter blowing their minds with right now? Our response to the web telescope pictures of the galaxy, that is likely their response to Peter's sermon. As the Lord is using him to awaken them to the truth of who Christ is. God in the flesh for the salvation of man. The Christ has come. That's what Peter is proclaiming. I want to focus on this one line here from the creed for the remainder of our time. It says in the creed, he descended to hell. What does that mean? He descended to hell. 1 Peter 3, verses 18 and 19, it says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now that text is often used as a proof text for the statement that's in the Apostles' Creed, where it says that he descended to hell. It's saying that Jesus at some point between his death and resurrection descended into hell. And some believe that that was necessary to experience the full agony of suffering for sin. That it was, that it was a part of Jesus fulfilling his passion. Now, in keeping with what we have been discussing, I want to be clear here. Some traditions throughout centuries believe it means that. that Jesus literally descended into hell. That both the creed and First Peter text are saying that Jesus was in hell. However, I'm convinced that neither Peter nor the creed mean that. First of all, in Luke 23, 43, remember the story of Jesus on the cross, and there are two thieves, terrorists, who are being crucified with him, one on each side. And they're hurling insults at Jesus. And then the one of them, at one point, speaks out against the other and says, what are you doing? Do you not... This man is innocent. We're here because of what we've done. This man is innocent. He looks to Jesus and he says to him today, Lord, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. And in Luke 23, 43, while on the cross, Jesus says to this thief who's just confessed a very basic and humble belief in him, today you will be with me in paradise. So we know that Jesus' intention was to go to paradise or the realm of the dead. In the New Testament, there's a word, Gehenna, that refers to what we think of as hell. We think of eternal judgment. 
place of separation from God. That is not where Jesus went. He was in the place called Hades in Greek or Sheol in Hebrew, in Hebrew, which is the waiting place of the dead. It is the abode of the dead as they wait for final judgment. The misunderstanding in the creed comes from language. Consider how there are some words that you say today, especially if you're older, and how they have a different meaning than they did when you said them when you were younger. That's what's happening here in our misunderstanding. The Latin word, inferos, means lower depths or underworld or place of the dead. There's another Latin word, inferna, which means properly hell, what we, what we think of when we talk about hell. And the earliest versions of the creed in Latin used the word for lower depths. So the better understanding is that Jesus descended to the dead. J.I. Packer comments here, the English is misleading, for hell has changed its sense since the English form of the creed was fixed. Originally, hell meant the place of the departed as such, corresponding to the Greek Hades and the Hebrew Sheol. That is what it means here, where the creed echoes Peter's statement that Psalm 16.10, Thou wilt not abandon my soul to Hades, was a prophecy fulfilled when Jesus rose. But since the 17th century, hell has been used to signify only the state of final retribution for the godless, for which the New Testament name is Gehenna. Continuing, Packer writes, what the creed means, however, is that Jesus entered not Gehenna, but Hades, that is, that he really died, and that it was from a genuine death, not a simulated one, that he rose. God the Son, who really did put on flesh and dwell among us, really did die and was buried and descended to the dead. What does our text say in verse 24? It was not possible for him to be held by it. And there he preached the good news of his victory to the wicked in Hades. First Peter is saying that Jesus went to the place of the dead and declared his victory over sin and over death. Now what does that mean for us? It means victory. He trampled death by death. And he graciously gives life to those in the grave. Jesus faced death for us, and now when we face death, we can do so knowing that we are not alone. He's been there before us, and he will see us through. As the creed says that he is coming again. The one who is at the right hand of the Father that the creed says and and that, that Peter in his sermon affirms. Is coming again. And what are we to do? How do we respond to the truths of who He is? That that God who created 
galaxies and put you here and sent His Son to you here. That His Son died, suffered, and was raised again. What do we do? And what do we do as we consider that He's at the right hand of the Father and He's coming again to judge the living and the dead? The right answer to that is what we see in the text. They responded to Peter, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent. and Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children. And for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls himself. Repent, believe, and obey. Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. We're going to move into a time where we take the Lord's Supper together. Again, verses 23 and 24 of our text, this Jesus, Son of God, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Christ died. Christ died a brutal and yet purposeful death. He was crushed for our iniquities. He descended to the dead for us. His blood was poured out. Why? For the forgiveness of our sins. And the blessing of taking the Lord's Supper is that we're, we're told, we're commanded, and at the same time invited in to each and every time you take the bread and take the cup, you remember the Lord's death until he comes. You proclaim even the Lord's death to one another until he comes. That there's a purposeful belief, it's an acknowledgement, we believe, that this represents your body that was broken for us. And we believe that this represents your blood that was literally poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. And so we proclaim that together in faith. Let's do that today with joy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we love you for who you are. Lord, we cannot even put into words how great you are as we consider even the pictures that have come from this telescope that you allowed man to create to get a glimpse into your creation. Things we could never have fathomed. Those things exist, we are told in your word, simply to glorify you. To cause us to say, you are far greater than we can comprehend. We praise you for that truth, Lord. And we praise you that in your greatness, as Father Almighty, you sent your Son to live the life that we could never live suffer and die for our sins. We 
thank you that you have said to us, whoever believes, whoever believes will be saved. What a gracious, gracious God you are to take all of the punishment on yourself and to just invite us to trust in you. Praise you for that and ask you to help us as we take the bread and the cup today to remember rightly what you have done, what you've accomplished for us through Jesus. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.